What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Anybody remember that song? Old Joe Osborne song. I thought of that this week. That's the chorus of that song. Where Joe is wondering what God is like if there were even really a way to know him. What is that like? And of course, Joe Osborne is hardly the first person to wonder what is God like? Is there a God? If there is a God, who is he? And how can we know him? I'm sure many of us have identified with the questions that she asks in this song. Questions like, if God had a name, what would it be? And if God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like angels and Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? Well, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 answer John Osborne's question for us quite plainly. In these opening verses, this prologue, if you will, to uh, John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, John tells us that Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man in one person, revealed to us who God is and what God is like. I'm going to invite you to turn there in your Bibles. If you haven't done so already, we're at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. If you're in this uh, ESV Story Bible, it's page 735. 735. If you're reading a different copy of Scripture, I can't help you on the page number, I'm sorry. But it is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So these first 18 verses in the Gospel of John are something like an overture in an old musical. Any musical fans? Broadway musical fans in here? Anyone? Anyone? No, just me. Me and Keith. All right, me and Keith. Okay. All right. So, in an old musical, what would happen is, of course, a musical is just a story, but it's punctuated by musical numbers, by songs, right? And people spontaneously burst into the song, and there's orchestras that appear out of nowhere. I don't know how it works, but it's cool. I wish I'd worked that way sometimes. Um, but, these songs happen kind of throughout the story. And at the beginning of a musical, there's an orchestral piece, an instrumental piece of music called an overture. And it really just gives a sample of all of the songs that you're going to hear as the story unfolds. And the first 18 verses of John's Gospel really uh, kind of act that way for the rest of his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so you find themes and realities and glimpses of things in these 18 verses that he then expounds upon and you'll see over and over again as the story of Jesus unfolds. Things like the deity of Jesus, the godness of Jesus Christ. Uh, the theme of light, light coming into the world, light shining into darkness. The theme of revelation is God revealing himself through the works and ministry of Jesus. The theme of belief and unbelief, people's responses to Jesus, some believing, faithful responses, others rejecting him and disbelieving. And so these themes and, and some others will recur throughout uh, the Gospel of John. And so these first 18 verses give us paint the, 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 the scene, set the stage, if you will, for the drama that will unfold. So we're going to read for you 
these first 18 verses of John's Gospel, reading from the English Standard Version. You just follow along as I read aloud. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray very quickly, Lord. Thank you for these words from your Spirit. And I ask you that you would enlighten our minds and hearts to understand and receive the truth that you would have for us today. In Jesus' name. So Jesus, fully God and fully man, reveals God to us. And in fact, he goes one step further than that and reconciles us to God. That is the good news that we have to proclaim and to live in that this passage proclaims to us. But let's take this one section at a time. So the first truth, all right, this is a very theological passage of Scripture. Like some passages are very practical and it's just talking about how I should live, how I should talk, and how I should behave, and those kind of things. This passage of scripture is loaded with teaching, loaded with theology, things to believe about who God is. Which doesn't mean it's not practical, but it means that there's kind of a, it takes a little bit of a mindset, kind of a higher level of, I'm, I'm trying to understand big, weighty truths. And John begins his gospel by, loading these verses with a lot of theology. So the first big theological truth that John gives to us in these verses is that Jesus Christ 
is the eternal Son of God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. You remember we looked last week at the, the verse for the end of John's Gospel in chapter 20 where he kind of says, the reason he's written the Gospel. And it was so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, first thing he does right out of the gate is confirm and tell us and declare for us in those in terms that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. We find that uh, very clearly in these first five verses. A few, a few truths coming from these verses illustrate to us, demonstrate to us that Jesus is God. Jesus is God's Son. First, he was pre-existent. That means before anything else existed, before there was earth, before there were plants, before there were animals, before there were people, he existed by himself before anything. So we see that in verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he was pre-existent. Now when it says he was God, that verb, there's a Greek verb they could have used if you wanted to convey the idea of coming into being. So there are some who say that Jesus was maybe the first created being and then he created the rest of things. But that's not what he says. The verb that he uses is just a very plain, simple to be, to exist. When he says he was with God and he was God, he is saying very plainly he existed as God. And then we find verse two, uh, excuse me, verses verse three, that he was the agent, if you will, of God's creative work. So the whole world came into existence through him. And it says, without him, nothing was made that was made. So everything came into being through him. Which means he couldn't have come into being. He had to already be in existence. So he was with God, he was God, and then the world was created through him. Now I think John is very intentionally reminding us of something else in the scripture. Those first few words, in the beginning, what does that make you think of? Call Genesis. Genesis 1, verse 1. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, first verse of the Bible, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. John very clearly is making this parallel. He's looking back before the creation of the world, back before anything or anyone existed except for God himself. And he says, he was there, and everything came into being through him. So God, the Father, creates the world somehow through the agency of Jesus, the Son of God. All right, so God the Father created the world through Jesus. So it's through him that everything comes into being. With God the Father at work in God the Son. That is Jesus. And that's really how things work throughout this gospel. Throughout the gospel of John, God is at work in Jesus. Um, through the, the person, through the agency of Jesus, God the Father is at work. So Jesus says things like, I only do what my Father gives me to do. But in John 9, where he heals a man that was born blind, he says, I must be about the work of him who sent me. And I only speak what the Father tells me to speak. So the work of Jesus on the earth, in his earthly ministry, is, is a sort of a, a channeling work of God the Father 
speaking to and giving works, giving mission to Jesus, and then Jesus carrying that mission out in the world. So God the Father at work in Jesus the Son is exactly how this works throughout Luke the Gospel of John. And that's how he, John is saying, that's how the world was created. It was created by God the Father through the person, through the work of Jesus the Son. The good news in that is that the work of redemption, the work of taking brokenness and restoring it and taking the world as it is and bringing it back into fellowship with God, is that the work of redemption is not a God-inspired human work. It is God at work in the world. God himself is working in the world. He worked through Jesus in creation. He worked through Jesus as he uh, sent the good news out uh, to the world around him uh, during his earthly ministry. And he is at work in the world now. Is Jesus in flesh and blood here? Who is here? Yeah, so the Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit live? In the church, right? So the word of redemption, I would argue, is God at work in the world through the presence of Jesus by His Spirit in His people. So the church at work in the world is God redeeming the world through Christ. So it's the continuation. God is always doing the same kind of work. He's redeeming the world through the person of Jesus uh, by acting in the world. And right now, in this age, that Jesus ascended to heaven and having not yet returned, we are the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. So God is at work in the world, working to redeem it. So he was pre-existent, existed before the world began. He was the Father's agent of creation. Everything came into being through him. And verse 4 and 5, he is the source of Life. You see that in verse 4? In him was life. Life existed in him. Life had its beginning in him. If there is life anywhere else, it came from him. He is the source of life. He is self-existent. There can only be one self-existent being. Because our existence is dependent, contingent, if you will, on an outside source being God. God, the creator, God, the giver of life, brings us into being. Therefore, our lives are from Him. But Jesus, the Word of God, the Son of God, exists in Himself, all by Himself. He does not depend on anyone or anything outside Himself to give life. In fact, life is in Him. Acts 17, 28 says, in him we live and move and have our being or our existence. And that expresses that same truth. Verse 5 says that, or excuse me, verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And we said the light has shined into the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. And so Light and life here, I think, are kind of parallel. I think light is sort of a metaphor for life, and Jesus himself uses it that way elsewhere in this gospel. Like in John 8, 12, it says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So, he had life in himself, and he shared that life with us, essentially. 
He existed. He had life. He was the source of life. And it sort of overflowed into the people that he created and gave life to. And we have a, a, a word of hope there in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Has not overcome it. Some translations say it's not understood it. Um, but the point being that light is going to uh, overcome darkness. Light will always push away darkness. That's what it does. Light and dark can't exist in the same place. In a dark room, you turn the light on, the darkness flees, right? The darkness goes away. Because light will always push darkness away. And so just as Jesus has this life in himself and shares it with the world, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate mission of Jesus' life will be achieved. So there is that promise of his overcoming life. So what does this mean? I think it means a couple of things. If Jesus is God the Son, and if Jesus is the agent of God's creation, and we exist and live because of him, I think it means at least two things for us. First of all, I think there's just a basic gratitude that we ought to have. An awareness all the time that I am only here by God's good pleasure. If God, through Jesus Christ, was not pleased or did not intend to give me life, I would not exist. So there's just a basic gratitude and awareness. My life comes from Him. And I think that ought to affect how we carry about. Uh, uh, going about our lives, and I think that's the second point, is that your life really is a stewardship to him. Because if God gave you life, then you owe it to him. I mean, it just follows that God is the one who's given us life, and we owe that life to him. Because he created us with a purpose. He created us with a design, with a goal in mind, and so we owe our lives to him. We are accountable we are accountable to God for how we live our lives. So the reality of a lot of people, and we'll see a lot of people within the Gospel of John respond this way, and of course I know people that respond this way, the reality is that many people see their lives as their own, and the notion that they owe God something is utterly ridiculous to them, and they refuse to acknowledge that their life that they owe their lives to God. They refuse to be held accountable for their actions or their choices by the way they live their lives. But the truth is, if life comes to us through Jesus Christ, then we owe Him our very lives. We owe Him our lives as a stewardship. So that ought to give us pause about the choices we make and how we spend our money and the kind of relationships that we nurture and and we spend our time what we invest ourselves in. We'll give a little side note about John the Baptist. Now, don't be confused here in verses 6 through 8. When he says there was a man named John, he's not speaking about himself. He's speaking about another John that, that's become known as John the Baptist, which is not to say that he was the first Baptist of the denomination. So, for that reason, I like to call him John the Baptizer. So, but he's speaking about another guy, a prophet, really, that God sent to sort of prepare the way, be the forerunner for Jesus. 
And so a forerunner um, would be, we had the job, if a king was going to enter a town or a region, the forerunner would come in maybe months in advance to kind of alert the people. The king is going to come and visit your town. So he would kind of organize cleaning efforts and let's make sure that the town is ready to receive the king when he comes, right? And so he was called the forerunner. And so that's really the role that John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, had is that of forerunner for Jesus. And so we'll actually read a good bit more about him next week because uh, the verses that follow this are really about John the Baptizer's ministry and uh, his baptism of Jesus. And so, uh, but John is simply saying, there is one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and prepare the way of the Lord. And he introduces himself that way in the passage next week. He introduces himself that way, saying, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Okay, so he is simply announcing the coming of Jesus as God's Messiah, God's sent one. And so it could be that John, the author of this gospel, puts this note in here because some of John the Baptist's followers had not taken the next step and become followers of Jesus. And so John, the author of the gospel, is saying to those people, John the baptizer is not the one you're supposed to be following. He is not the light. He was just, he just came here witness to the light. He was just talking about the light that's coming, and the real light is Jesus. And so he gives this kind of little aside. It's kind of parenthetical comment that John the baptizer is not the light. He was bearing witness to the light. So that at the end of that passage. So the first thing that we see, the first truth, big, bold, powerful truth, is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He existed before the world. He has life in himself. He was God's agent of creation. So God the Word is God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ. The next truth that we see in this passage, you can probably predict, is that Jesus became a human being. Jesus became a human being. Verse 9. The true light, so again, distinguishing Jesus from John the baptizer. The true light, which enlightens everyone, brings its light to everyone, was coming into the world. Was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. But the world did not know him. So Jesus brought his light into the world. And I think that means not merely that he entered the world, but that the light that existed in him, in his life, was shined upon all of the darkness around him, and the darkness of the human hearts of the people around him and expose their darkness. So when it says that his light shined on us all, I think he's, he's speaking about the light of Jesus' holiness, the light of Jesus' purity, the light of Jesus' character and wisdom and truth, sort of like a mirror exposes our darkness and our weakness and our foolishness and our Sin. And so there are many people who come into contact with the light of Jesus and recoil. Like, have you ever been in an old dingy apartment or something and you turn on the lights and you see roaches scattering and hiding, right? It's like some people's response to Jesus is just like those roaches going, ah, get away. 
and our final place to hide, right? So Jesus brings his light into the world, and and we recoil. People run away from his light. We'll talk a little more about that. But he was coming into the world, it says there in verse 9. Let's skip ahead a little bit to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. By the way, this is Christmas. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, the incredible, miraculous reality that God became a human being. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh and form and nature and entered our darkness. So it says he became flesh. He didn't merely appear to be human. He didn't merely put on like a human shell. Like humanity was kind of a space suit for him. He became human without ceasing to be God. And so he added to himself, might be the best way to think about it, he added to himself a human nature and a human body and a human form. And so he becomes God, the Son, in a human being, in one person. And there we go again with that God map. One plus one equals one. God nature plus human nature does not equal two persons. equals one person, Jesus Christ. The God-man, some people call him. Trying to express that reality. The nature of God and the nature of humanity existing in this one person, Jesus Christ. And it is beyond us. It's beyond our brains, beyond our ability to fully comprehend, you could say. That is why I'm so Christmas. So when he was born as a human baby to a human mother, he was taking on humanity to himself. So he added a human nature and body to his divine nature. So the word became flesh. I love this next phrase in verse 14. And dwelt among us. The word, uh, the Greek word used there for dwelt really could be more literally like pitched his tent among us. And the tent is like the word like a tabernacle. So in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt for about 400 years, and through a guy named Moses, God leads the people of Israel out of slavery, and they spend about 40 years wandering around, living in the, the wilderness, camping out in the wilderness, outside their, the promised land, where they were eventually lived. But during that time, when they were camping in the wilderness, they set up what they called a tabernacle. Just a big tent. And in the tabernacle, um, that is where God was said to live. So the very presence of God among his people was represented by this tabernacle, as much as a physical space can contain the divine being, right? And so I don't think that's where God actually came to to live in that tent. But in a representative way, a symbolic way, the tabernacle among God's people represented the presence of God in the life of the nation of Israel, his covenant people at that time. And so that's the language that's used by John here when he says that, he, that the Word, the Son of God, took on flesh and tabernacled among us, pitched his tabernacle among us. So again, the very presence of God with his people is Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes the presence of God in the world with his people. So he lived among us 
reminded of the words of Charles Wesley's great hymn that we sing at Christmas time. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, Godhead, this is triune God. Hail the incarnate deity. Please, as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So the incredible reality of Jesus, God the Son, becoming a human being is unspeakably merciful of God. It's unspeakably humble of Jesus. We heard uh, Philippians 2 read earlier that, that though he existed as God, he didn't consider his status and his role in heavens as something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. So he became flesh and he tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Jesus shows us what God looks like. The glory of God is represented by Jesus. Hebrews 1 3 tells us that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God is like, Joe Osborne? Look at Jesus. Jesus shows us what God is like. Jesus represents to us exactly who God is because he is himself God, the Son, in human flesh. Just as the tabernacle represents the glory of God among his people, Jesus shows us the glory of God. We have seen his glory, continuing in verse 14. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, the one and only of the Father which is really a better translation than some that say begotten, which kind of has the idea of coming into being. The language here really is about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and his relationship to God. So glory is of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace is a huge word. It's a beautiful word. It's a word we probably don't focus on enough. Grace is the completely undeserved kindness of God towards sinners. The completely unmerited, unearned love, kindness, blessing, and goodness of God towards sinners who have rejected it, and sinned against him, and rebelled against him. Jesus Christ brings God's presence to us, and in him we see grace. We see kindness. We see mercy, grace, and truth. So we find that the world did not recognize him. We're going to jump back up to verses 10 and 11 here. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. So he makes the world, and then he comes to the world. But tragically, the world did not recognize him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people, that is, the Jewish people, the people of God under the old covenant. He came to his own, born as a Jewish child to a Jewish mother in a Jewish line, into a Jewish religion, he came to his own people, but it did not receive him. The Old Testament over and over promised a Messiah. They promised uh, one that was going to come in the name of God, as God, and make things right, and set things back to the way they were supposed to be. But when Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world as the Messiah, the people of Israel largely did not receive him. Obviously, there were some who did, and there are still some who do. 
But as a whole, the people of Israel rejected him, refused to recognize that Jesus was this promised Messiah. And so as Jesus shined his light and exposed the darkness of, of the human heart, people around him scattered. In John 3.19, he says that people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. If your deeds are evil, you'd rather stay in the dark. Right? You don't want to be found out. You don't want to be discovered. I've been there. It's a bad place to be. If your deeds are evil, you want to stay in the shadows. And so when light comes, you're going to go farther back. You're going to find a corner. You're going to find a place to hide. And that's what people did in the presence of Jesus over and over again. And that is really the state of the world that we live in. The state of the world is that people, in their sin, would rather not deal with God. They'd rather even say, I don't think there is a God. I don't think God even exists. Than come face to face with their own sin and wickedness and be held accountable for it. That's the way we live. I like what Gary Burge says in, in a commentary over this week. He says, John understands that we do not live in a nice world that God desires to make nicer. We rather live in a world that repudiates the truth, that is totally rejected, and replaces it with more fashionable truths. Oh, I like this path. I like God in my image instead of me in God's image. And so the world twists and changes things to, to be more appealing to themselves. See, our unbelief and rejection of Jesus is just like a cancer patient who refuses to receive appropriate treatment and instead thinks, I'm going to start going to the gym. I'm going to work out more. That's what I need. Well, clearly, getting more fit in the gym is not going to deal with the cancer. And there is a treatment available, and they would rather reject that and find their own way, which is utter foolishness. But that's where, that's where people are. Apart from the mercy of God in opening our blinded eyes and bringing us to a saving knowledge of truth, that's where we are. We reject them when we go... So the question for us in light of this is, how will we respond to the light of Jesus? When Jesus shines the light of his holiness and his wisdom and his truth into our hearts and into our lives, what are we going to do? Are we going to respond in fear, denial, hiding? That's what Adam did in Genesis 3. Right after he's eaten the fruit, disobeyed God, broken fellowship with him. He hears God coming, and maybe the saddest verse in all the Bible says, I was afraid, and so I hid. We were never supposed to be afraid of God. That's not what God intended. And yet that's where we are, because of our sin and our brokenness. So are we going to respond to the light of Jesus by hiding and being afraid? Or will we embrace him? Will we let his light shine on us? accept our brokenness and then invite Jesus to, to make it better. Invite Jesus to redeem and restore our brokenness, to repent of our sin, to turn to him in simple faith. Well, this isn't good news yet. So we've learned so far that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Giant, huge theological truth. We've learned that the Word of God, the Son of God, became a human being in the person of Jesus. Holy God, holy man in one person. 
So far, it's amazing, but not good news. It's not good news to us yet, unless Jesus, in his incarnation, does something for us. So, here's the good news. Jesus reconciles us to the Father. Jesus reconciles us to the Father. Read with me, please, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, that's a contrast to the people who Jesus liked him in the world, and they ran, they scattered, they rejected. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For we're not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I have the picture in my mind of an orphan who's been alienated from his family, longing to be reunited with his father. Maybe he's aware. His parents are out there, doesn't know where they are, looking out a window and waiting for them to come, longing to be reconciled. Jesus gives the right to that orphan to be brought back into the family. Because the truth is, God doesn't really owe us anything. Because God gave us life and we rejected it, right? We rejected it. We don't live in accountability to him. So he doesn't really owe us anything. And the truth is, we weren't merely just orphans. We were more like runaways. We were living in God's house and we ran away from it. We rejected it. And so we forfeited our right to be in the family of God. But so Jesus comes to us with his life and his love, his mercy. And to any who will receive him, gives them the right to become children of God. He authorizes us, if you will, to, to be reunited to our Father. So what does that mean, to, to receive him? Well, God tells us, to as many who received him, who believed in his name. To receive Jesus is to believe in him, and not just in that intellectual assent to, yeah, I think those things might be true, but in the same sense we talked about last week of, of trusting in an airline pilot. Not by saying, yeah, I think airplanes generally work, but by placing your body in a chair on an airplane and allowing him to take you into the skies. That is you're trusting, believing in the airline and the pilot who's Flying that plane. In the same way, this believing in Jesus is not just a verbal proclamation, Jesus is God, I'm a sinner. It's more than that. It's, it's a heartfelt, a deep-seated realization, recognition that Jesus is God, and I am a sinner, and Jesus has taken my brokenness upon himself, identified himself with my broken humanity. To carry that burden to a cross, to take my sin upon himself and to pay for it. So that doesn't stand in the way between me and my father, for whom I've been alienated. And he rose from the dead to defeat death and to defeat hell and to push Satan out of the way and say, There's nothing standing between you and me. That is what Jesus has done. Down verse 16. From his Fullness, we all receive grace upon grace. Going back to the definition of grace as undeserved kindness and favor 
from God. I get the image and it says grace upon grace of, of like standing in an ocean. Just a few feet from the shore, and there's just waves. One of the waves, they just keep coming. They just don't stop. You used to be standing for hours, days, water from that idea. You could just stand there and waves just keep coming. Wave after wave after wave after wave after wave. After wave. I get that image. When we receive from his soul's grace upon grace, it's just God keeps giving. He keeps loving. He keeps forgiving. He keeps blessing. He keeps guiding. He keeps comforting. He keeps strengthening. Just grace after grace after grace. Like waves in the ocean. Roll stuff. The law was given through Moses, verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came to Jesus Christ. So again, looking back to that old covenant way of things, the way of life, the way of relating to God before was, you're going to sin, you've got to make sacrifice, you've got to have a priest who's going to represent you, and you can't go into the temple or the tabernacle because you're too sinful, and so someone's going to have to do that for you, and all this. Like, there's a law that came to Moses. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. If you do this, you'll be blessed. Don't do this, you'll be cursed. Right? And that's the way that it, that it was under Moses. And there's still grace there. I mean, God still had a way to forgive uh, his people and to dwell with them mercifully. Uh, but but the, the contrast between the law that comes through Moses and grace and truth that comes through Jesus could not be more stark, could not be more plain. Jesus brings us a new way, a better way to have access to the Father. In John 14, 6, when his disciples asked him, he's about to go up to heaven, he says, I'm preparing a place for you. I'm going to my Father, and you can come with me. His disciples say, well, we don't know how to get there. How are we, how are we going to get to the Father? Jesus says, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this new way of coming to God, this new way of being restored in relationship to God, our Father, is no longer through perfectly adhering to the law of God, which you can't do. Like, man, you can't do. I can't do. So there's a lot of only time today. Right? There's no sin in life. So Jesus says, I'll do it for you. And he comes to earth as a human being and he lives out God's law, perfectly obeying God in our place. We say, okay, but we've already sinned, we've already broken the law, I'm going to be paying the penalty for the sin forever. And he says, no, no, I'll pay it for you. By going to the cross and taking the punishment upon myself. You know what to do well. We say, okay, but there's still death to deal with. Like, even if we have good stuff now and we have this forgiveness and this relationship now, it's all going to end because we're going to die. He says, no, no, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now I'm going to defeat death. So you don't have to worry about that either. So Jesus, just grace upon grace upon grace, our access to God, our reunion with God the Father comes to the person, the incarnation, that's a big fantasy theological word for God in the flesh. Jesus reveals the Father to us. Jesus reconciles to the Father. And God, of course, is the, the, the actor, the initiator in all of this. He took the initiative. He created. He gave life. He shined his light. He sent the Son into the world, and now he's inviting. He's, he's welcoming us to come to him. So to answer Joe Osborne's question one more time, what does what God look like? And what would his name be? What would his face look like? Well, just look at Jesus. Look at the person of Jesus. As we read about him, as we come to him in prayer and relationship to him, he's, 
grace upon grace upon grace and kindness, forgiveness and mercy. That's Jesus. And so now we have this offer, the condition. Uh, oh, excuse me, there, there is a condition for, to our sonship, right? We have to be given the right to become children of God. And the condition is receive him. The condition is believe. That's it. Believe in his name. And by believing, we go back to John's point, you may have life in his 